The COVID-19 pandemic and the drive for social justice have highlighted the need for meaningful change in the U.S. education system. New technologies and social realities are also impacting the aspirations of young people, and our schools have to keep up. As we look toward the future of education, we must think about how to best prepare students for a changing world rather than simply relying on the teaching methods of the past. What methods will allow us to best assess students and reshape public education? How can we improve education when there are barriers to reform? And what should education look like going forward? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Dr. Bill Daggett to find out. Dr. Bill Daggett is a career education professional with extensive experience both in the classroom and in administration. He is the founder of two education improvement organizations, the Successful Practices Network and the International Center for Leadership in Education. He is also the creator of the Rigor Relevance Framework and the Future Focus Success Framework, which have become key tools in education reform efforts. Having written 26 books on education, Dr. Daggett is a frequent speaker and is recognized as one of the most important voices in the field. Today, he's here to talk to us about the direction public education needs to go to best serve all students. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. I'm delighted to be with you, Kevin. Well, you know, Bill, we've known each other for a while, and and one of the reasons why I wanted you on is uh, I can't think of anyone more steeped in the operations of schools across the country than you. And this is an interesting time, so I wanted to talk about and just get your insights on where we are uh, educationally in this country. So that, that's going to be my first question. What's the state of education in America today? Kevin, uh, I've been crisscrossing the country for 30 years in the industrialized world. The last two years have been the most interesting and most challenged. And we, we had the pandemic, Kevin, which caused enormous challenges to school districts. And we all know that from going virtual to feeding kids from remote locations to mental health related issues. Um, the, the list is long. In many ways, schools are tr just trying to get back right now, get back to what they consider normal, become stable. But at the same time, the world outside of school, pushed by technology, pushed by the fact that, you know, 35% of American workers work from home uh, permanently now. Uh, and another uh, half of them spend a third of their time working remotely. The workplace, home and society has evolved to a new set of skills and knowledges and attributes. So where schools are right now is in this incredible tug of war. How do I stabilize the system, which almost takes you back to the past, while at the same time needing fundamental school reform? And so uh, it leads us to a point where our teachers, our administrators are physically and emotionally exhausted but at the same time, recognizing more than ever, we need change. We also are seeing superintendents who felt handcuffed 
by administration, by the status quo, and, and often held back on reforms. We're seeing more and more of those superintendents taking risks, which speaks to your point. Uh, this idea of education reform, which you mentioned, in, in many ways among people who, many people who are in the system, it has been viewed as a bad word, a bad expression. I think that's increasingly less the case based on some of the factors you just mentioned. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think people intellectually uh, know that we need to reform, but emotionally are trying to figure out how do I do it during these trying times. But, you know, Kevin, just like in our personal lives, when you hit a crisis, that's usually when, as you begin to come out of that crisis and we're coming out of the crisis, that's when you begin to say, I really got to change some things I do. So I think what we'll see, Kevin, despite everybody being so tired uh, and stressed, I think we're going to see more change in and around public education in the next two or three years than we've seen since uh, you and I entered the profession decades ago. But what about this, the pushback, uh, the barriers to change are sort of the in institutional bureaucratic forces uh, that have a knee-jerk reaction to, um, to doing things differently. Even though there's this will for change among many, uh, that, those forces are still strong, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, you know, we are a deeply polarized nation right now. Uh, and we're politically polarized. And the epicenter of that has moved down to school boards. Uh, and with that, you've got people just hanging on saying, let's just do basics, stop everything else. On the other hand, you got some people who are on the extreme opposite side. Uh, but the vast majority of people, Kevin, I find are in the middle. What they recognize is Yes, we have to do strong basic. Basics are essential, they're non-negotiable. But you know what we learned during the pandemic, Kevin? We learned uh, and the public learned that schools also feed kids. Yeah, yeah. While, while they were out virtual, you still had to feed them. We also recognize we have a mental health crisis uh, in this nation with our young people. And so I, I think there is a growing realization that we are about the whole child. And so uh, I, I'm optimistic while there is that real pushback and there is that real push to get back to where we used to be. I think the vast majority of the nation, both with our educators and our public, are beginning to swing and saying, we've got to do some things differently. You talk about the mental health of, 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 of our students, which has dramatically been more uh, apparent because of the pandemic. And this is personal to you. You have a daughter who's had neurological disorder. You've uh, been involved with the special needs population in school systems around the world. Uh, and, and you and others are pointing to that as something that has become more pronounced or more obvious as an issue that needs to be addressed. What are some of your thoughts in terms of how school districts should deal with this issue of the mental health, health challenge of students? Kevin, I think we all have to take a deep step back and recognize 
that our kids are all very, very different. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, my daughter, Audrey, who is disabled. Uh, Bonnie and I have five children and they really run the gamut from truly gifted and talented to Audrey, who's severely disabled, to a son that has disabilities after being uh, hit when he was 11 years old and in a coma for three months, to uh, two of the other boys who are doing just fine. You know, and that's one family, Kevin. If we can get people to re- look at their own children, because I don't believe there's any family in this country where all their kids are the same. Yeah. They're, they're all different. And to think somehow that we can have a school system where we're going to have, for example, a proficiency exam at some point during the school year that will determine whether the student has been successful or not successful is ludicrous. Now, what about teachers in the classroom? Uh, the Our education system, as you know, was based on an industrial revolution model where kids sit in a room, they are quiet, they watch a teacher who leads them and, 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 and guides the conversation, they take notes, they then you know, take a test on it, give the teacher back what they had given them, and that's pretty much it. Now things are more interactive. We talk about project-based learning, we talk about collaboration, we talk about uh, mastery where kids learn at their own pace, we talk about not just the one test, to measure proficiency, but see the starting point, see the growth. How should classrooms look different for teachers? They should be very active. Kids should be working, as you just said, in small groups, project-based learning, uh, working in groups at a time. Uh, We've got to use technology differently. Kevin, you're aware of incredible advancements in technology that now enable us to personalize instruction. Think about any of your teachers in the performing arts. Think about any of your athletic coaches. They're on the sidelines. The kids are performing. They're active. And that coach stops, helps them, coaches them. That's the change in today's classroom Uh, from providing instruction to managing learning, much like many of our our academic areas have done for a long time. Also, Kevin, very much like kindergarten teachers used to be able to do. But today, more and more, we, we pushed so many standards lower and lower earlier and earlier in the school year and in uh, the academic years of our students that we took away things like structured play and so on, which wasn't just play. It was actually teaching skills through an active process. What about this idea of if if the classroom changes, then really an individual school changes. What about this notion of the role of central administration in school districts going forward? Yeah, I, I see central administration having two distinct uh, responsibilities. They still now have to set mm-hmm. policy. Okay. But policy is like setting the lighthouse. Where do we want to be and setting broad guardrails that the, then the local a building has to work within. But you know, Kevin, that doesn't take very many people. That doesn't take a big central administrative staff to do that. 
because then the second role, which is they sh where they should be adding more staff, providing more expertise, is providing technical assistance back to the school, to the principal, to the teachers. But what has happened through the years is central administration became very much like yes. state ed departments and USDOE. They, they became the group, they were the rule makers. And they thought their job was simply to monitor the rules. No, their job is to provide technical assistance. It's almost reversing the pyramid, if you will. But how do we get there? Because some have argued that um, if we have, you know, two or three of the major school districts take this approach, then others will follow. Or if there's an innovative or influential school district in a handful of states, how do you think is the best way to uh, engender that type of transition. I had the privilege over the last 18 months to chair a national commission for AASA, American Association of School Superintendents, where they made a series of bold recommendations around a lot of the areas we've been discussing in this podcast. But they concluded that the recommendations would be nothing more than another report on the shelf. And let's, we got some districts to begin to implement it. So last year, 120 districts across the country came together. It's called Learning 2025. Uh, we've just added another 160 districts to it. We will be at 280 districts this year on that national initiative. AASA's national conference for the next three years, which is uh, for the superintendents, that's 13,000 mm -hmm. superintendents in this country are part of AASA. Their national conference is 3,000 superintendents. For the next three years, the entire conference is gonna be built around what are we finding in what is now 280 districts. We anticipate for the 23-24 school year that we will push that up to over 500 districts. And so, it's gotta be an evolutionary process, not a revolutionary process. Revolutionists get killed yeah. in this environment. Gotta be evolutionary, but it's gotta be critical mass and there's gotta be safety in numbers. Recognizing that the big swirl is politics. The politics that we see in school boards, uh, culture wars, uh, while schools are, are trying to manage this change and even embrace some aspects of change, how do uh, the school boards, superintendents, uh, teachers and staff manage uh, the social challenges and the pressures they're getting because of the politics of education? I, I think, you, again, it's in an evolutionary uh, way, but you got to build a culture. So... Let me give an example. Uh, we've joined hands with uh, the 280 districts with Battelle for Kids, and they, they have something called Portrait of a Graduate. And it's a process you put a community through to think through deeply what do they want their graduates to look like in five years? What are the skills, knowledges, and attributes? Uh, and you, you have community forums and roundtables, a wide variety of groups, as well as the educators. And, and we're finding the Battelle's had a success at this for the last five, six years in, in hundreds of districts. They're able to get people to agree, yeah, that's what the graduate should look like. They are the skills, knowledges, and attributes. And they become very, very specific. As part of that, 
we have worked with McKenzie and Company, and, and they surveyed 18,000 companies, small, medium, and large across every industrial sector, to, to be very specific on the skills they think the future workforce needs in, uh, across industrial lines. And they've identified a series of cognitive skills, a series of self-leadership skills, a series of interpersonal skills, and a series of digital-communication mm -hmm. skills. As you do these community forums and portrait of a graduate, we suggest people look at that McKenzie research. They don't have to agree with it, just look at it. But we're finding in 99.9% .9 of the people say, you know, that's right, we agree. That's what we want our sons and daughters to have. Once you can agree what the graduate needs to have, then the next step, and we're doing that, is what's the portrait of the educator look like? If that's what we want the kids to be like, what experiences uh, are there that the educator has to provide to get the kids there? We see that, Kevin, as a two to three year process. I wish we could turn, uh, turn it over uh, on a dime, but you can't, it takes two to three years. What changes needs to need to take place with the shape of school boards to allow superintendents and school leaders to be able to, you know, do the things you're talking about? Because I've heard many superintendents, you have as well, say, yeah, I want to do that, but I've got to manage my board. And they're sort of, you know, st stuck in the structure that they know. It seems to me a lot of the forward-thinking, forward-looking initiatives similar to what you're talking about, where you understand the profile of the graduates you want to see in five years, the profile of the educator, it requires a different level of thinking that many school board leaders who oversee schools are accustomed to. Yeah, and, and that, is, that is a very, very difficult task because we have some, Kevin, fabulous, and you yes. know them, fabulous school board yes. members. But we have some also, I'll call them single issue board members yes. who, who, who just consume that superintendent and leadership uh, team's time, energy, and focus. Uh, the state school boards associations in the various states, and, and you know, they're, many of them are in somewhat disarray yes, right now yes. themselves. Uh, they, they, yeah, they got to provide more and more uh, technical assistance and support to school board members when they're first elected and support to boards that become dysfunctional. Uh, nature of American education, we will not get rid of school boards and I don't think we should, but we do have to teach them uh, what it means to be a board member and not an advocate for a specific area. I think the more the uh, superintendent ahead of time can work, uh, she or he works with that board one-on-one -on -one to get the majority of them to be focused on the direction that the school district should be going, keeping them focused on policy and, and slowly work to isolate that individual or two or three board members who are, again, just using as a stepping stone or uh, are on a crusade, but it is a very complicated task for our school superintendents. How big an issue is the money issue, uh, or is it that we're just spending it on the wrong things in our schools? Well, I'm not saying we're spending on the wrong things, but I, I mean, I want more money for yeah. schools. We all do. But here's the reality. 
you hardly could create a more expensive delivery system than we presently have. And part of that is because we are what I call forward focused rather than future focused. Uh, when when a, a school district begins to put the budget together for next year, you know, Kevin, what they start with, they start with the existing budget and the existing yeah. contracts and, and understandably so. And they say, okay, well, how much more money do we need next year to continue what we now have in place? And then they say, well, and I'd like to get a little bit more somewhere so I could do something else. And so they want a little more money on top of that. When the standards movement's got the same problem, and I've been close to this, the standards movement in the country for 30 years, we never, ever take a standard <laughs> away. We just add more. But we don't expand the school day, school year. And so what's happened is we have a system because it's forward focused from the past that has become overloaded. And it's got too much stuff in it. Future focus says, and, and that's where like the portrait of the graduate and so on and getting the community engaged in that is putting that stake in the ground of the three, five years out and build back from that future. Now, you've got to do a little bit of both of these at the same time. So this is what I really want to know. If you think about education in America today and in your view, think about the way it will look 10 years from now. Will it be different? And if so, how? I think it will be different. I think it will be much more application-based. I think we will begin to value experiences other than that simply of seat time. Uh, I believe we will see, you know, used the term earlier project-based learning. I think we're gonna see a lot, lot more of that type of activity. Uh, we're going to move away from uh, the heavy focus on Carnegie unit and time. I think we're going to move away from this one definition uh, of what we do as proficiency by a state test to a much more of a growth model. And so what we're going to see is less uniformity and more flexibility in how it happens and when it happens and where it happens. And overall, what will get us there, Kevin, is if we can get the nation to love our kids more than all the individual special interest issues, one at a time, and to love our kids' future more than the schools of our past, and focus on that. Wow. Bill Daggett. It's always an honor and pleasure to be with you, my friend. Thank you for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education. And write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag WIWTK. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.